Alright, hola, hola, bienvenidos. Welcome to Lit Latinas Book Club, a weekly podcast where we talk everything about Latina, Latino literature. Um, and this month we are focusing on Big Chicas Don't Cry by Annette Chavez Macias. This novel is a novel about four cousins, Mari, Erika, Selena, and Gracie, who identify as Mexican-American living in Southern California, more specifically, the Inland Empire. And so this book really has 66 chapters. Each chapter is written from the perspective of the one of the individuals, um, either it's Mari, Erika, or Selena, or Gracie, talking about their lives. The book starts when these characters are 15 years old, and Mari mentions to the group that she wants to run away because her parents are getting a divorce. The rest of the girls kind of chime in and want to support her and be there for her, and they say, we'll go with you, um, but halfway through their decision, they kind of begin to think about different scenarios, and basically, they do not run away together. They come back home. Skipping over to the next chapter that follows that, it's, you know, 15 years later and these women are all kind of grown up and doing their own thing, living their own lives, but still remain pretty, pretty close, except for one, Mari. So Mari apparently has moved on with her life. It seems as though she did move away with her mom. Her parents were divorced. And Mari's cousins, so the rest of the girls, are on the dad's side of the family. Meaning that Mari didn't really grow up with them anymore. Um, her closeness kind of faded away as she, you know, moved on with her life with her mom. Um, and they moved to Whittier, which is still in Southern California. It's just a bit far away from the rest of the group. And so let's get into it. There's five questions that I really have, well, four mainly, um, four questions that I have for this week. And the first one has to do with the characters. I'm interested to see what the readers and what the listeners, you know, who they identify with um, and who are they more inspired to be like, most inspired to be like. Um, so out of the four, Erika, Selena, Gracie, and Mari, which one of these women do you feel like you resonate the most with? And which one do you feel like you want to be more like? Um, and so for me, one of the characters that I really resonate with, I resonate with all of them in different ways, but the one that stood out to me the most um, that I feel is the most relatable to me personally is Gracie. Gracie is a first grade teacher at a Catholic school. She is very reserved. Um, Selena, one of the more, you know, out there primas, calls Gracie a prude at one point um, because they're having a conversation about sex and Gracie basically doesn't want to engage. Um, and so I just think it's so funny because, you know, she works at a Catholic school and that's just her persona, right? That's just who she kind of is. She's reserved. She doesn't like to talk about things that are taboo. Um, and so for me, Gracie really resonates with me because of that. I feel like she is the more reserved of the group. 
Um, she does seem a little bit more like the responsible one. I mean, they're all responsible in their own ways, but Gracie kind of does it a little bit more. Um, Gracie also has like, I don't want to call them self-confidence issues, but she does lack confidence when it comes to her profession. She does not want to speak up or stir trouble. And so because of that, she stays quiet, but it becomes overwhelming because her emotions are kind of bottled up and she doesn't know how to express them. Um, and so for me, Gracie really stands out as someone that I relate to. She's also very passionate about her job. She's an educator. And so everything that she does kind of revolves around her, her profession, which I really like. Um, and as far as the characters who I am inspired by or want to be more like, I definitely see Erika as like my potential literary big sister. Um, Erika has this sort of confidence about her where she doesn't really care what other people think of her. She knows her worth and she knows what she brings to the table as a reporter. She works for a news outlet. She's the education reporter on um, or for that company. And she's not afraid to really voice, you know, her strengths, which I really admire from Erika. Selena and Mari are interesting characters. Selena seems to be like the younger prima of them all she went through heartbreak and is now kind of just exploring and living her life trying to not catch feelings but she ends up falling in love um and so it goes you know her story is all about her relationship and what she really wants or doesn't want and then Mari is the kind of estranged cousin who is married and has moved away she has a very successful husband um she has a business degree however when she got married it seems that her dreams and her aspirations kind of took a back seat to her husband's and so we'll talk a little bit about that in the coming questions so You know, one of the first questions that I have, and this is really the main conversation for today, is about Selena and her identity and identity development. So Selena mentions in the book um, that she was called a white Tina. And if you don't know what that is, it's a white Latina. Um, and she was called this by her boyfriend, her high school boyfriend, who happens to be white. His name was Seth. Um, and then later on, so that was, you know, when she was in high school, but even later on in her career, she identifies as being the token Latina for her company. Her coworkers are always coming to her and asking her to be the spokesperson for the Latino community. Um, and so really my question regarding to Selena is, have you ever experienced that before? Have you ever experienced kind of this, you know, brown measuring stick? How brown are you? Um, for our lighter skin Latinas, it's usually a lot of, you know, you don't look like the rest of us, um, 
sometimes that's praised right amongst uh, like older generations when we talk about like assimilation and white passing and privileges and things like that and other times it can also be looked down upon you aren't like us and you don't belong here um and so really for the listeners and the readers out there have you ever really experienced something like that where you aren't brown enough you aren't latina enough you aren't you know, Spanish, you aren't Mexican because you don't speak Spanish or you're not American because you do speak Spanish or you're not whatever it is that the dominant culture says that you aren't. I want to bring it back to, you know, TikTok. TikTok is really popular right now. One um, content creator that I follow on on TikTok on my personal account, um, her name is... I believe, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. It, I know she pronounced it at one point. It's Keishla. And she is a Chinese Puerto Rican. She identifies as Chinese Puerto Rican. She grew up in Puerto Rico. She lives in Puerto Rico. She speaks Spanish. And when she first started posting her TikToks, her comment section blew up. It blew up with people being amazed that she spoke Spanish frequently. And she's like, well, I'm Puerto Rican. Like, what do you mean? Um, but she reads as Asian or she reads, you know, primarily as her um, Chinese ethnicity first. And so even when we think about somebody like that who is born and raised in a culture, in a place where, you know, she may not look like the rest of the population, but she definitely belongs there. Um, these circumstances may play into our identity and who we are, right? And so really when we begin to think about identity development and how complex it can be, this is one of the topics that I'm really, really passionate about to bring up is how is it that we go through these stages um, and, you know, for that reference, I do want to refer to a specific clinical psychologist by the name of William Cross. So William Cross is a black educator, theorist, and psychology researcher in ethnic identity, ethnic identity development, specifically black identity development. And the reason why I want to talk about him is because in a scholarly journal that I had read or I had come across, um, I noticed that they referenced his work. Okay. And so the article that referenced Cross was written by Azara Rivera Santiago. Um, and the title of that article was Understanding Latino Ethnic Identity Development, a Review of Relevant Issues. So Dr. Rivera Santiago talked about Cross and talked about his framework um, for ethnic identity development. Okay, so Cross developed a four-stage model of Black identity that contributes to the formation of specific racial identity attitudes and is a precursor to many of the more recent models that um, Rivera Santiago talks about, okay? So this is verbatim. According to Cross, the four stages are to pre-encounter in which blacks deny their culture and value the dominant society, aka white culture, 
Two, encounter in which a situation occurs that pushes the individual to question and re-examine old ways of thinking and behaving. In this stage, a search for black identity is coupled with feelings of guilt and anger with the dominant society. Three, immersion and immersion in which there is a full commitment to black culture. The individual pulls away from the values held by dominant culture and is often characterized as having little tolerance for white society. And the last stage is internalization. It's viewed as the final stage of development involving the resolution of conflicts with the dominant culture. Individuals achieve a sense of balance between beliefs about their own culture and dominant culture. Basically, Dr. Riviera Santiago takes cross um takes william cross's framework and along with a few others um in order to you know make it kind of fit uh, the latino ethnic identity development model he proposes but he takes cross's model and really uses it as a basis for how latinos kind of flourish into who they are okay right so it's like the first stage is we may not want to identify as Latino. We may stop speaking Spanish or we may stop dressing a certain way or we may not like things that tie us back to the culture in which we are made fun of or belittled for, right? And so I think about like my mom and how she wanted me to learn English specifically at a very young age so that I wouldn't be made fun of at school for speaking Spanish. Um, So that's like an example, right? We deny our culture and we kind of place this value on the dominant culture. In Cross's model, it's specific to white culture, but this can be applied to any dominant society. And then two, encounter. And so now there is a way that kind of makes us question how we're thinking and behaving. And it's kind of like we feel almost guilt for denying who we are and accepting, you know, the dominant culture as like the preferred culture, right? The dominant culture as the preferred way of living or life. Um, And that could be like European beauty standards, right? For a really long time, you know, there was an emphasis on like, and there still is an emphasis on European beauty standards, but there's also a movement at the same time to deny those beauty standards and accentuate, you know, features that are more indigenous, more ethnic, more whatever, you know, fill in the blank could be. Um, And then... Stage three is immersion or immersion. You are fully committed to the culture that you um, belong to. And I know that for myself, there was a time and there still are times where I am just Mexican, right? Sola Mexicana. That's it. There's no other identity. Um, and then four is just like internalization. So it's kind of like coming to terms with you know, you have multiple identities and that's okay. And so you are, you are allowed almost to embrace all of these identities that you, that you are. Um, and so for Selena, 
really, I think about who she is, right? And like I said, I think, I believe she seems to be the younger of the four cousins. And she seems to be the one who is really kind of struggling with who she is in this society as a Latina, as a probably lighter skinned Latina, um, and how she's navigating in her like relationships. And she even kind of compares, you know, Seth with Nathan, you know, she, and she says like Seth came from like a very privileged background. He was also white. I believe Nathan is, um, I don't remember if he is Latino or not, but he grew up, uh, I believe in New York and he grew up with his mom. I think it was a single mom and, you know, he struggled a little bit in his younger life. And so she really begins to admire that. So for our readers and our listeners out there, has that ever happened to you as well? Have you ever kind of tugged or had conflict with your identity and your development of your identity. And what did that look like for you? How does it feel? Um, I still know for myself, like I am still battling some issues between my own identity. Um, and especially as I'm in certain spaces, you know, depending on who I'm around, it depends on the identity I kind of choose. And so my identity then becomes a little bit fluid Um, In some spaces, I'm a lot more Latina and I'm a lot more Mexican than other spaces. In some spaces, I am very much American um, and I will, you know, say that specifically and strategically um, depending on, you know, if my safety is being threatened, right? And yeah, how have you dealt with these issues of identity if you have and if you haven't you know why was it that you didn't have these issues you know do you think that your family played a big role in helping you embrace who you are or maybe your family you know contributed to the conflict to the internal conflicts that you faced um i'd love to hear more so that is our kind of our main question. There's a couple other questions as well that I can post. Um, there's a question that I have about Maddie and, you know, Maddie is married and she specifically says that she takes the back seat to her dreams and aspirations. She has a full on business degree and met her husband when she was catering, um, or working, not catering, but she was working for a catering company. And, she says that she married her husband, she fell in love, married her husband. Her husband is a very well-known and prestigious lawyer. And he has her take care of like charity events and organizing dinners for clients. And just a lot of like, you know, she gives very much like new money wife energy um even though she doesn't want it she she definitely does not want that energy she wants to create her own business she likes baking she always wanted to start her business even before and Esteban her husband had promised her that he would help her and he would support her but yet he hasn't and they've been married for I don't remember something like five years um and so my question for Mari is more like do these behaviors stem from, 
you know, kind of, I don't want to call it trauma, but does it stem from the experience that she had as a teenager going through her parents' divorce? Or is this a little bit deeper? And do these behaviors, because I know this is really common for a lot of people, not just Latinas, but just in general, the patriarchal kind of conditions that we are accustomed to, right? Is this stemming from patriarchal conditions of society and gender roles that we have subconsciously continued to reciprocate every single day in our lives? Is this from her personal experience or is this something much, much deeper to where it's a societal kind of problem? Is that where it stems from? As far as Gracie, Gracie has confidence issues. She's great at her job, but tends to bottle up her emotions, right? Um, She's very passionate about her work. And, you know, she talks about how she cleaned the multi-purpose room where the after-school homework help club kind of stays. She cleaned it. She painted it. She found funding for it. And so my question in regards to Gracie is, A lot of us are invested in our jobs, especially if we find meaning through them. So for myself, um, I'm currently a college counselor, and so I'm very passionate about my students, and I invest in my students, and I want to make sure that they have everything and anything that they need. But when do we know that we are investing or over-investing in our jobs, right? These are our occupations. Um, My job is not my identity. Even though sometimes I let that kind of take over. Or is it okay for me to, you know, over-invest and claim my job as my identity? You know, where are the healthy boundaries? Where are the you know, where's the threshold of like, it's too much? Is Gracie doing too much? Or is she doing, you know, what she believes is right? Is there a right or wrong answer to that? Um, And I ask because it's true. I, I do think as educators, you know, this is a big topic. We are almost kind of like expected to be martyrs for our, our students. And that's not okay. But yet at the same time, It is a big part of who we are because we value education so much. So for Gracie, you know, how do we know when investing in your job is healthy? And when do we know that we've crossed that line into like unhealthy boundaries and unhealthy expectations? And lastly, my last question is for Erika. So Erika is a very... I want to call her feisty. I think she gives me very big sister energy. She's somebody that I want to learn from and grow. Um, And I look to her as kind of this big sister that I never had. She's confident. She plays soccer and she's super good. Um, And she's confident in her job. And so one thing I really like about Erika is that she's not afraid to say what she wants or to say what she feels in that moment. Now, there is a line, I feel, um, that Erika should not cross. However, you know, for Erika, what I want to know and what I want to question and I want to, you know, I want to get the viewers or the readers point of view is Erika 
is really confident in her job. Um, where can we get that confidence? How can we balance being assertive um, and being straightforward without having these negative stereotypes placed on us? So at one point in one of the chapters, it almost seems like she's experiencing kind of retaliation from her boss because she spoke up about her article and basically said that she is the expert and that she is there for a reason to do her job in nicer terms, in nicer terms. She said that, but you know, how can we maintain the balance of like professionalism, but also still be a boss right at the end of the day and know our worth and be confident in what we do? How can Erika really balance that out? Um, and how can we apply like these lessons into our lives? It's easier said than done for some people. But for myself, I definitely see Erika as like this person that I want to be more like, right? I want to have more confidence like Erika. I want to speak up more like her. And so how can we balance, again, professionalism with boss level energy and confidence without the negative kind of connotations or stereotypes that people give women in the workplace? Um, and so that kind of wraps up our book talk for today. Um, tune in next week for chapters 12 through 23. We'll kind of explore the more that I'm reading this book, the more I feel it like it's an easy read. I want to keep reading and find out kind of what happens. But next week, there's a couple other bigger questions that we can talk about or we can revisit some of these questions as well. I'd love to know. Tune in next week. As I said, same time, same place for chapters 12 through 23 for Big Chicas Don't Cry. Thanks.